Hey there, and welcome to Jed Bangers Ball. I am your host, Jed Mayhew. Uh, it is, what's the date today? January 20th, Martin Luther King Day. Overcast here in LA. Uh, it's been nice and warm the last couple of days and cold before that. And uh, well, this is just starting off super interesting. I will, we're going to give you the weather uh, on a day that doesn't exist anymore because when you hear this, uh, it will be, I don't know, whenever Sean Hoffman, our uh, esteemed producer, uh, mixes the interviews together. I'll, I'll explain. I think that we got into this a little bit on the um, podcast, but I do this podcast uh, with a Zoom, we'll get technical here, a Zoom R16. It's, a, it's basically, I use like a four track that you would record your band's demo with. Um, I use a couple mics. I actually use the mic that I sing through on every show um, with zigzags, and uh, I, I record the uh, interviews with that exact same mic. It's a Shure SM58. Um, and why I sing through this mic every time is because, and I may have said this before, but uh, this is a uh, pro tip for anyone in a band: sing, bring your own microphone. Uh, and preferably bring a Shure SM58 uh, because the, most clubs generally, the, that's the microphone that every sound man uses for vocals. And so they will have their system tuned for that microphone. And the reason why you want to bring that microphone is so that you don't get sick by sharing the same microphone uh, that every other uh, disgusting piece of shit has sang through, and I mean, I can't imagine, I can't imagine a more uh, disgusting uh, group of individuals than uh, lead singers in rock and roll bands. Um, filthy, filthy people. Um, and and from the beginning of time, I mean, uh, you don't want any of the diseases that these people have. Uh, contracted and or died from so yes bring your own microphone and and i got really sick in europe one year on tour um and i've again i've said this before um but uh that was what the turning point for me was it was uh the turning point to quit uh quit smoking and to quit sharing a microphone with just the filthiest grossest human beings um I can't think of a sicker subset of people on this earth um, than uh, singers in rock and roll bands. I mean, if you're going to... I'm sure you could share a microphone with Pavarotti or something. You'll get this nice sort of, I would imagine, sort of um, garlic olive oily kind of taste to the head he wears one of those like i would imagine he probably wears one of those like madonna mics those like headset mics you know i would share a microphone with Pavarotti because he's probably just eating at the finest um italian restaurants but i mean remember in the 80s like rod stewart like they had to pump like 16 gallons of semen out of his stomach i mean these are the people that that sing in these rock and roll bands and you're putting your mouth on the same thing as them. Anyways, moving right along today on the show, we have a Bradley Iger. Um, I believe that's the way you pronounce the last name. I texted him and I said, does your last name sound like tiger? And he never wrote me back. So 
We're going to go with Iger. It could be Eager. I'm not sure. But uh, Brad Iger is a guy I met uh, via Instagram. Like I meet on most of the guys I meet are via Instagram. Um, I used to meet them on Grinder, but now I meet them on Instagram. Um, but I met him. He was a. Uh, I think he was following the band. He's he's a music guy. But when I uh, followed him back, I noticed that he had multiple photos of European and or American supercars. And I'm a big car guy, you know. I don't talk about it that often because, you know, when you get a little older and you get more responsible or you have other interests, you have a wife, you have a dog, um, you struggle to find work. Uh, Supercars are not necessarily in the budget um your daily uh, you know your daily needs are not going to be met by a supercar that you can't afford so i don't really talk about it too much or i used to have muscle cars and we do get into that in uh in the interview and, and in my younger days i would had muscle cars but i used to actually in high school um when i was having a hard time sleeping or or feeling sort of like you know, I wasn't where I wanted to be uh, geographically in my life um, in eastern Washington. And at night I would go to bed and I would I would just think about muscle cars and I would think about different types of cars and the models and the different type, types of paint jobs that they had. And, and that would sort of relax me. And then there was a time when from like an, if, if you take like a 1964 to 1972 American car, um any sort of like muscle car, performance car, I can tell you exactly uh, what car that is. And uh, and I can tell you the options for those cars, the engine options, the transmissions, the paint options, the trim. I could tell you all that stuff. I can't tell you that right now uh, the way I used to, but I, I, I'd be able to recall it. But there was a time when I could look at any car and I could tell you exactly uh, what that car came with. Um, and I don't know, I guess it was just a way to sort of relax my, relax my brain at night, um, knowing that I wasn't going anywhere soon. Um, and that even if I did live in a place that maybe I didn't want to be, if I had one of those cars, I could at least drive around, um, my high school and flip people off. Uh, so anyways, uh, Brad's on the show today. Um, we have a bunch of zigzag shows coming up as well. Um, I want to thank everyone who ordered the split seven inch with Mike Watt that is now sold out via our Instagram. It is streaming now on all services as well. Um, again, I don't fuck the fucking phone goes off every time I do the goddamn podcast and the last three in a row. It's gone off in the middle of it, and now it just went off again, and it goes off in the interview as well, and now the intro. Um, where was I? Anyways, the Mike Watt 7 Inch is now streaming the single. Um, we did a cover of The Minuteman. We did Political Nightmare. Um, and I will be going down to San Pedro on Wednesday this week, the... Well, whatever. Um, and I will be a guest on the Mike Watt Radio Show, and I will be interviewing, if all goes according to plan, I will be interviewing Mike Watt for this podcast. So look out for that. Uh, this Saturday is the actual record release show for 
the Mike Watt 7-inch and uh, split with Mike Watt. And uh, we are playing at the factory in downtown L.A. with Nice. And um, who else is playing? The Side Eyes um, and a band called Urns and Argyles, who I'm not familiar with yet, but I will be. Um, if you go on our Instagram, Zigzags Music, at Zigzags Music on Instagram, um, you can message me there and I will tell you the address uh, because it is a DIY ask a punk sort of show uh and then february 21st we'll be at the till two club in san diego with the well um we're doing three shows with them uh the next day the 22nd we'll be at the poorhouse in oceanside then the following day uh sunday february 23rd we will be at permanent records roadhouse here in la which i just played with my other band golden grease go look up golden grease on bandcamp goldengrease.bandcamp.com um that is my sort of uh i don't know wiry angular punk band uh that i'm playing with with my uh friends from high school um so we just played there and that's a great spot uh that's lance's spot he he opened up uh it's a record store it's a bar it's a music venue um we will be going there on tuesday to see earth girl helen brown which is um our friend heidi's band um and then more zigzags in march we got march 12th at the bigfoot and that's with persecutor jay bennett who was on this podcast his band's playing March 20th, we will be in Santa Cruz. I don't the I don't know the location yet, to, TBD, to be determined, but we will be playing with Glitter Wizard. And then on the 21st, we're going to be at Bottom of the Hill, or both, as I call it, with Glitter Wizard, Banquet, Psychic Hit, and more. Uh, I think that's about it. So let's get into our interview here with Bradley Iger. You are listening to Jedbanger's Ball. Weird shit like that happens all the time. Just when you got cars or when you got like... Uh... No, it's like me as a human being. Um, <laughs> it, but usually it is car related because I'm doing something car related at the time. But yeah, it's always weird shit like that where it's like, this never happens. But I guess you said it does happen sometimes. So. Well, it happened at our old, old place right. just because of the fucking steepness of Baxter, which is... Uh, I had uh, this guy Don Wynn on the show who's a skater. And he actually bombed that hill, and he's like the only person to ever skate down <laughs> that, that hill. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we used to get these trucks that just come up and just get stuck there like once a fucking week, man. It was just always such a nightmare. The fact for the that you knew what I meant by high centered um, lets me know that you've you've dealt with that before, you know. <laughs> well, I used to also live out in the desert, so like we would get high centered constantly, you know, with, mm-hmm. like trying to go out to like. And then when I was a kid, you know, like going out to like uh, places to drink in the desert, mm-hmm. people would just get their fucking cars high-centered constantly you know because you know, you're just out there partying yeah yeah well you'd have to drive over you know drive off of a dirt road and you got like some like honda accord or something uh, like that, gotcha you know? what kind of car did you have today uh subaru uh sti s209 so it's like a special edition sti which is a you know fancy version of a wrx yeah because i remember when the wrx came out and like it in it's like a is that a like a rally car what is like yeah, i mean that's definitely where it got famous the, you know subaru sponsored a team that was running in rally and they brought on this this company called prodrive uh-huh. and they sort of tuned their their like street cars to to you know perform in rally and they did super well and so they kind of got this reputation as like a rally performance company and so they kind of just you know played that up over the years right 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 i remember i saw when, when someone per, they, it's funny they used to always be blue Mm-hmm. Like yeah, it's I, like that's their color. 
Oh, that's their like team. I mean, uh, even the badge now is blue. Like right. the Subaru badge is that same blue. So what's the what's the deal with the car that you got? Like, what's the like horsepower? What's the like so the S on? the S two hundred nine is a special edition that they that they're putting out this year. It's only for America. They're making two hundred nine of them. Um, it's three hundred forty three hundred forty one horsepower, I think, which is like thirty five or forty horsepower more than the standard car. It's really more about like the suspension and chassis stuff. So it's like kind of like a track tuned car. So it's got. You know, a bigger wing in the back and like some arrow up front and some different suspension tuning and special special tires and wheels and that sort of stuff. So, like, is it for, would it be for like drifting and stuff too? Or is it, or did, that's not really, that's more, that's like different than rally. It's more for like going around corners fast, but not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's more for like road racing. Right. Um, like drifting is kind of similar, but at the same time, like to drift, you are losing grip. And the whole idea with like tuning a, a car for, you know, track performance is to maintain as much grip as possible right so like there are similarities but ultimately like at the limit you want the car to be stable whereas when you're drifting it you want it to be loose you want to be able to throw the car around and have it rotate do they make uh factory cars specifically for drifting or is that like more of like a, a custom like job I that mean, people like diy kind of thing or no automaker would ever tell you that they've that they've tuned a car to drift because like the liability is just through the roof. Right. But like there are cars that have drift modes now. Like Mercedes has a car that has a drift mode. Um the Focus R the Ford Focus RS um has a drift mode. And like, you know, people are stuffing those things into walls all the time in drift mode, you know, trying yeah. to like, you know, be Ken Block. <laughs> when I when I first moved to LA it's the, the, one of the first people that I met, oddly enough, was I had this woman who was like a manager and I was doing kind of writing and stuff at the time. And that's a whole other story. But <laughs> but we went down to, um, it was, I think it was Dana Point, Newport. Yeah, Dana Point, I think. And uh -huh. we met some people at Monster Energy Drink and they had just gotten back from doing the uh, Baja 1000 mm -hmm. race. And then I went out and hung out with uh, this guy Reese Millen, you know, mm -hmm. who's a, he's a, I didn't know at the time, but now he's become like the most famous. Yeah, he's up there drifter, for sure, you know. And those guys, we went to this bar, and I remember just going. We went back to their house, and they were him and his buddy. I can't remember another another famous uh, drift uh, racer guy, and they were just driving through these canyons, just. In a, one guy's in a Mercedes and one guy's in a BMW and I was drunk in the back seat and they were just like <laughs> racing each other back to their house, you know, it's uh -huh. just like, it's fucking crazy, you know? And, um, I mean, those cars were stock cars, but I don't know if maybe they had like, you know, fucked with them. I'm sure they had fucked with People them. People who are talented behind yeah. the wheel can do crazy shit, even with totally normal cars, you know? I guess that's what I'm getting at because I remember going to like the, uh, Toyota Grand Prix and, and I met him there too. And, you know, they had those, those crazy, like, uh, emergency e-brakes e -brakes that they mm -hmm. use to drift or whatever it's like a metal pole basically yeah. yep. but i'm sure like if you if you know what you're doing you can probably just get it going in you can it certainly helps like the whole idea is to get the you know assuming it's a rear wheel drive car um you want to get the rear wheel, the rear tires to, to to like lose traction completely so an easy way to do that if you're not going super fast or like have all the weight on on the front of the car is just to lock up the rear wheels and then all of a sudden you can just spin them instantly. Right. So it's just basically coaxing the car into a drift, basically. So like the Subaru though, that's going to be a front wheel driver. It's all wheel drive. It's all wheel drive. All -wheel drive so that's right. that's why it's not like a really big um, choice for drifting. You can do it with those cars, but like just four wheel just drive inherently plants. wants to wants to correct itself. Right. So, like, you can get it to rotate, but, like, you get on the gas and it immediately wants to go straight again. Right, right. 
That's crazy. So where, like, where did you grow up then? In- I actually grew up in Laguna Niguel and Dana Point. Oh, okay. Wow, that's funny. Yeah. So that's my uh, my wife calls it that my useless psychic psychic ability. So yeah. <laughs> Was there like a car scene down there for that? Or I mean, kinda. I mean, there's like a bunch of spoiled kids, you know, with like lifted trucks mostly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I you know, there's a car culture in Southern California in general. Sure. Um. But at the time, like, I mean, I was into cars, but I had a few friends who were like, and at that, that, at that point, I was super into muscle cars. So yeah. I knew a bunch of kids who were in like a muscle car club and we hung out a lot. Um, and then I went up to the Bay Area to go to school and like just like put, shelved that for a while and like focused on like music and getting through college. Yeah. Well, San Francisco in that area is not really a car. It's hard to drive up exactly. there. Exactly. You know, it's just totally. It's, I mean, I had a car up there and it was a pain in the ass 98% of the time. I think San Francisco, I mean, it's starting to change now that as, as sort of like the public transportation technologies and things catch up. But I remember when I was like living in Seattle as a teenager or whatever, San Francisco was kind of the only town, city on the West Coast that you didn't have to have a car, you know? I mean, like, it's definitely it like easier the New York to be there. Of, you know? So we were on the other side of the Bay Bridge right. and whenever we were going to do something over there, you had to like dial in an extra... 30 to 45 minutes once you got over the bridge to figure out where you're going to park the car. Cause like, dude, a good spot. And this was like 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. Um, a good spot was like seven blocks away from wherever you needed to be and like city blocks, which, you know, that's another 15 minutes of walking yeah. to get wherever you're going. Well, and also San Francisco, when you come back, your fucking windows are always smashed. Out right. Of your car no, totally. Too, so like, yeah. The other, and the, this is the last rant I'll have about it. Is that <laughs> the the BART? I don't know if it's different now, but when we were up there, the BART only ran until like midnight. I think it's the same still. I so think, if you're yeah. at a show or something like that, you're screwed. Like know, you're you're just stuck. It's worthless. On, you're stuck on that side of the bay, so you have to bring your car over. I've never understood that, and, and I think it runs a little bit later here on the weekends. I can't remember. I think the last train is at like. I don't know, 150 or something like that, which is not you're, terrible. You're kind of rolling the dice, but yeah. It's, yeah, it's I just, I don't understand. It's like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be in a city and you're gonna implement a train or whatever, it's gotta go till at least 2.30. Right. At least a half it's an gotta, hour after the bar It's gotta be aligned yeah. with the bars, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any fucking, I, I always feel like, every time they talk about like, oh, we're trying to do this for safety, it's always just like a money thing. You know? Right, That's no, why. totally. They, they want to catch you, like, no matter what. And, and it's, it, it's a whole another little area of commerce for the city, you know? Yeah. But now that I'm 40, I go to bed at 9, so it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, really, hear it doesn't really matter. And I don't drink that much because I don't want I don't want to be hung over in the morning anymore, right. you know? But back when I gave a shit, though, I would... I mean... With Uber and all that stuff now, it doesn't matter. But like back when I was, you know, when I was drinking and partying and stuff. And I mean, I used to in Seattle. I used to fuck, man. I used to drive home drunk in my '77 Camaro yellow. It's definitely a way to get in trouble in the rain. <laughs> in the rain, like all the time, you know. And I actually drifted one night. Um, I, I was trying to rain. Get, will do that. <laughs> I was I was just about to my house, and I, then I, at the last minute, I decided to I, I needed to go to Jack in the Box, you know. Mm. And so I just slammed on the uh, brakes and t- and made a hard left and did like a full 360 in, in the middle of the street. Um, and th- luckily there was no one around. But I that was like that was kind of like one of the last times. That was like the wake up call of like, what the fuck are you? Doing? You know, <laughs> yeah, um, every once in a while you need to check yourself that way. You know, yeah, it keeps you it keeps you uh, alive as long as it doesn't. Right. Um, what kind of what like what kind of uh, what kind of car club was it? What was the deal with the car club when you were growing up? So there was like this 
weekly car show at like some like an El Toro or something like that, and uh, I just started showing up there. Like at the time, I had a '68 Charger, and I didn't really know anybody. I was what just kind like, of engine? 383. Okay, um, so like a stock. I mean, it was a little bit intake and exhaust. It wasn't yeah. anything super gnarly. At but that the engine time. was stock on it, though. It came with that. Came yeah, with, yeah, no, it was a three eighty three. Like yeah. so, for the big blocks at that point, you had a three eighty three four forty or a four twenty six Hemi, right. and so that was the smallest of the bigger engines. Right. Um, and I, I didn't really have any like car friends. I was just super into cars, and all my friends were into like partying and, and music, which was cool. But I mean, it was kind of like my own thing, and. Very few people to like relate to on that, but so I went to this you know car show a couple of times, and I met this kid who had this like fucking badass like seventy two Challenger, and we just started hanging out, and he introduced me to all his friends, and they had like a whole crew of people who just you know went to the drag races and went on cruises and whatever, and they were hoodlums like I was, so it was it was like good to have that kind of crew too. But it was it kind of established this like. Um, separation between like my musician friends and my hot rodding friends which is still kind of a thing now because like there isn't a lot of overlap like the people who are into punk rock and the people who are into like cars are are pretty much on different sides of the fence most of the time like the punk rock guys unless it's like a totally you know beat to shit you know rad hot rod like they don't care because like that represents like money sure and you know the hot rod guys i mean a lot of them say like, "Yeah, I'm into you know, I'm into rock and roll," and like, they show you their Foo Fighters collection. <laughs> I think, and you're like, "All right, all right, man." <laughs> I, think, I think that yeah, I think it's a lot of a lot of people that say they're into music, and when they do, that you ask them what they're into, and they say everything. It's a lot of it right. is a lot of Foo it's Fighters. Top forty, stuff, yeah, you know, <laughs> or just yeah, or you know, I, I mean, at best, it's like queens of the stone age right you know, that's like and, and that, usually that's like something you can kind of like latch onto and be right. like here is caius like here is a bunch of other stuff that like maybe you'll get into this shit and like you know it will kind of show you a whole new avenue of stuff you could get into yeah but yeah usually about at this point in your life like if you haven't established that interest like to, to seek that stuff out it's kind of a lost cause like well, it's funny. I was like, you know, I was so into cars when I was younger and I, but I lived like in Eastern Washington in the middle of nowhere. And I was like obsessed with cars as like, I guess like just sort of a distraction or, you know, way out. And I didn't mm-hmm. have any cool cars until later when I moved to Seattle and bought that Camaro. And then I, then I ended up with a, uh, I ended up buying a 71 Cuda. Uh, that I then sold, and then I ended up with a seventy Challenger. Nice. That I that was like. Pri- what made you? I'm sorry to interrupt. What made you sell the seventy one Cuda? Well, this is a thing. So this is why I don't really have stuff now. Is because just the upkeep just and the money, breaking. you know, and yeah, that's and, why I got rid of the Charger. Yeah, I mean, I was going to go off to school, and I was like, dude, I can't be strapped with like a thousand dollar repair. You know? Yeah, and like when you don't have like a. A place to work on it, like you're really screwed because then it's whatever the mechanic is charging you or the tools, you yeah. know. And and at that time, it, it was funny. It was it was a funny time because it this woman that I met, uh, I was I was working at 
Sub Pop Records as a publicist. This woman was a writer for the Boston Globe. Mm. And she was going through a divorce and she owned a house in Seattle. And she said, I could go live in this house while it was like getting sorted out. You know? Nice. And I was paying her like $500 a month. And I was living in this four bedroom house, like right on the lake for Rad. by myself. <laughs> and I only had enough furniture for like one room. <laughs> so it's like a mattress in the living room. And you're like, cool, I'm <laughs> home. It was like one regular bedroom, but the rest of the house had nothing in it at all. You know, so but it was great for a, it was great for partying because nothing could get broken. Cause right, people would just come <laughs> over, fall asleep on the floor. People, bands could stay there all the time. You know, but, and just nothing in there. But at one point, I had in the driveway. I so basically, the happened with that Cuda is I bought it for back when people were listing cars for sale in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. You had older people selling cars that I don't think they realized what they were going for on eBay mm-hmm. or they didn't see that crazy. Cause this is like 2003, I want to say. Yeah, and they were going up a lot. There was this crazy point. muscle yep. car boom, you yep. know, the back then, as you know, and, uh, that car, I bought it for like $8,000, uh, with a 440 in it. Not original. It was originally like a 318, but, um, and it had like glass packs and it was just <laughs> fucking loud and ratty and obnoxious and, and it wasn't complete, but it was, it was a 71 Cuda. Right. And I mean, you know, even if you're missing the body panels, the thing still looks rad and, it, and I'm it, sure it sounded great. It sounded insane, you know, yep. and, and, and at one point in my driveway, I had the 71 Cuda, I had the 70 Challenger and I had the 77 Camaro Z, <laughs> Z28 just in the driveway. Yeah, so you just had like you a know? menagerie of badass muscle cars. <laughs> I just was like a cool dad, but I was like 24, you know. But I sold the Cuda on eBay because that was when that sort of stuff was coming around. You yeah, know? I mean, I'm sure it was worth a ton. I it, mean, that's that's around when I sold my Charger, and like, you know, it's it, especially Mopar stuff. Yeah, the Mopar stuff was crazy, and like, yeah, I mean, around I think I trans, yeah, I rent, transferred in 2003, and at that point, like, you're pretty much at the peak, and it's like people will pay whatever you're asking because if, if they wait like a month the thing is going to be worth another grand yeah you know? and they didn't care about um they didn't care about clones and stuff right. at that time they, they just didn't care about a car origi- a run, especially a running car i mean i think a lot of guys just wanted to flip them you know yeah and that's and that's essentially what i did although that wasn't what i wanted to do you know and and the same thing happened with the challenger where it's like the the challenger when i got it was a 340 with a slapstick automatic and again it was a originally a 318 but that car once i got that car i was like oh man i found this is the car this mm-hmm. is like my favorite car the vanishing point car you know but it was it was primer gray mm-hmm. uh holes in the floor you know you the rally wheels i had the rally wheels yeah. and i had the rt hood i also nice. had a hemi hood that the guy gave me too but i ended up selling the hemi hood just to i didn't need it right um but i had the rt hood i had the uh rally wheels um it was it was a killer car and again it was just like i just wasn't doing it justice and i sold it to this kid came down from canada picked it up with his grandfather and like fuck i don't even know like 10 years later he sent me a photo of it like limelight green uh 100% restored. Nice. 446 pack. At least it went to a good home, you know? I'd rather have it that that be that. I mean, it's, yeah, then it wrapped around a telephone pole. Yeah, you know? or just or just even just sitting in right. my garage and not having, you know, same with like guitars or whatever. It's like totally. I, the like fact use that, it and do something cool with it. Yeah. 
The fact right. that somebody uses it is like more important to me than even having the fucking car. And I mean, you know, you know this. I mean, like when you ha- when that is your daily, like it becomes like part of your lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. Like you can't just like get in it and drive it. Like you can't be like everyone's like go meet us here, and you're thinking like you're calculating like did it start well yesterday? What temperature is it outside? Like is this, I mean, like you just never know. Like yeah. how much like you know when your gas gauge doesn't work, you're like. How much gas did I have in the thing last time I drove it? It's probably like half a tank. Or you've had two <laughs> beers and your speedo doesn't work, and right. you're just like fuck. Or it's just bouncing around. It's like yeah. between forty and eighty all the time. You're just like fuck. <laughs> how do I know like what I'm going? You know? Yeah. Like, no. I mean, it's it's like a you're juggling all these different slightly janky things about it. You know. It's, totally. Like I said, I mean, it's part it's part of your lifestyle. Like, but you living know, with that car. Well, and the funny and another thing people don't realize too is when you drive those cars, is every fucking gas station, some guy's going to come up and talk to you yep. about it. You know, every one of them, always. Yep. You know, and Absolutely. and it can be fun. You know, like. And Sometimes you're just like, no, man, I, I'm loaded and I want to get home. <laughs> it's like it's like being a famous person. You yeah. know? It's like you're like, oh, what? That, uh, Tom Cruise is a dick. I went up to him and he was eating. It's the same thing where it's just like you're like, oh, fuck, dude, I don't need to. Charger owners are assholes. Yeah, just wait. I'm, I'm like late for work. You know, yeah, this guy. I had a '68 Charger for several years after the Fast and the Furious came out. So, well, like, and you also can that's imagine, the bullet car too. Yeah, you know, that's and the, I mean that the bullet, you know, bullet is what sort of inspired me to get that. Yeah, car. And I saw I saw the movie, and at the time I was shopping around, I thought I was going to get like a like a '68 to '70 Chevelle, and I saw the movie, and I was like, if I don't buy a '68 Charger. Every time I see one, I'm going to wish I'd bought that instead. Yeah. And they were a lot harder. They made a lot less of them than they sure. did the Chevelle. So they were harder to find. It took like a year to find a decent one in California. And I drove up to Visalia to get it. But I was it was worth it. I mean, I love that car. To yeah. Death. Was it black too? No. Mine oh. was, um, yeah. I mean, I, I wished it was. But uh, it was it was a good color. It was like a hemi orange. It was it was not a factory color. Right. It was sort of like a, actually kind of like the color of your, your mic muffler. Muff, what, what would you call that? Um, oh, the, this thing? Yeah. Oh, just like the clown nose, we call it. The, <laughs> yeah. and the, the cover the for, clown the, nose. The, the, for the microphone, the uh, spit screen or whatever. Spit the fuck screen. There you yeah. go. Um, yeah, kind of like a, a so like more a fucking, reddish orange. Oh, like a uh, Dukes of Hazard. Kind of, yeah. And I mean, I got that a lot. And I was like, that one was a 69 Charger, not yeah, a 68, yeah. dude. And everyone's <laughs> like, no. I mean, to anybody who's not super into those cars, they look identical. It's funny, though, too. I also say, like, I'm like, sometimes I think I'm like, if you are like a dude in your, like, whatever, 40s or something. I, I mean, this is a cliche that, you know, guys buy cars in midlife crisis or whatever. But if but if you bought, like, if you took, you know, I don't even know how much they are now. But if you bought, took like $30,000, bought a daily driver convertible Mustang in California. It's 66, we'll say. Mm-hmm. It will change your life in a good way in the sense that now you are thinking about something, not just people recognizing you or being able to like meet girls. It's just you're thinking about something else, you know. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it like I said, you know, it's, it's becomes part of your life. That's what I mean. You know? it, yeah. It changes your whole lifestyle. Like, I mean, the people that you talk to, the conversations that it creates, like you said, at gas yeah. stations, sometimes that's cool. Sometimes yeah. you meet other, like, you know, the, those guys <laughs> I met at El Toro, like I wouldn't have met them if I hadn't had that car and they yeah. were super cool dudes. And I mean, certainly if it's something you're into, it, it definitely can drive you towards something bigger that sort of alters your, your way, your, your trajectory in life, you know? Yeah. So okay, so how did you get started then? Like, at, like what school did you go to? I went to Berkeley. Um, oh, okay, 
I did an internship for CarCraft um, when I was 18, though. Oh, okay. Um, like, I just knew... I mean, I had an idea, that, like, when I was a teenager that I wanted to, to write. I didn't know about what, really. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I knew that I was into cars. And I, at the time, I had, like, a 72 Mustang and just didn't really know that much about it. But I was wrenching on it and keeping it going. And I was like, how can I how can I do something with cars? Like, and, or how can I do something with writing? And I was like, what do I know? And what can I like, were you writing about music at all too? Or like, not at that point? Um, what bands were you going to see too? Like, I mean, there? at that point it was, I mean, this is SF like, no, well, Oh, so, early on. Oh yeah. Orange so, County. Yeah. No, I was still in Orange County at that point. And I mean, you know, I was listening to nine inch nails and shit like that at that <laughs> right. point. Somebody turned me on to Big Black when I was like 19, okay, and that yeah. kind of like changed everything. Sure. That got me into the Stooges that's cool. and that's, like a yeah. bunch of shit. You that's know? funny. That's a, that's a funny band for that to be. Like I heard them not too long after some of the stuff that I was hearing, but I was listening to like Misfits and Dead Kennedys and Circle Jerks before the black, Big mm. Black stuff sort of came in. And... I was super, super into Nine Inch Nails in high school, yeah. and a friend of mine who was in punk rock, he was like, you should listen to this band, Big Black, and I listened to it, and I was like, holy shit. That makes sense, yeah. This is who this this guy's been ripping off the whole time, and then like that kind of like just sent me down this little like you know rabbit hole of all these different bands and who influenced who, and, and then someone you know played Raw Power for me a few months later, right. and that like just changed the whole deal, you know? Yeah. Because then it's got the rock and roll element to well, it. Well, you're too. like, wow, like everybody's ripping these guys off. This is the first, <laughs> this is, this is like the quintessential record, like yeah. rock and roll record. And like, you know, you see that you hear the Pixies in it and you hear Nirvana in it and you hear like so much of like the, the music that I loved. And I was, and also Raw Power is like the best rock record ever made. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it, it definitely, I mean, I was into music sort of on like a, a identity basis at that point but that changed things because like also it seems when you actually like really look at like punk rock and like deconstruct it you're like this is three chords like i could do this like i can learn how to do this like, well, like nice now this big production yeah. where there's like you know freaking 100 tracks in you know in a, in a song and like it just it seems impossible it seems like magic when you don't understand music yeah know? it's like a chevy small block versus, <laughs> right versus the wrx or whatever. yeah what uh, do you prefer the uh, Bowie version or the Iggy version of the Raw Power? I think Iggy's version is better, man. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, you you, you want to like the Bowie version more, and I, I mean, I get why people are into that. I mean, it, it is the original sort of you know interpretation of that, right? But like, I when I first heard Raw Power, it was the uh, the Iggy version. Oh, and really? See, that's the thing. I think it depends on which one you hear first. You and know? then I and then I went back, you know, a few years later and, and sort of researched it. And I mean, the thing is, like, you can see why Raw Power didn't do that well originally because of the way it was mixed originally. There's not it's 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 really tinny. Yeah. And like the guitar, there's like there's a weird there's a weird emphasis on certain things, and like other things are de-emphasized mm -hmm. in that like don't blend to make a beefy sounding record and i think like iggy identified that when they went back to remix it and like i don't even think it necessarily sounds modern it just sounds like you would want a rock record to sound you right know? right i think yeah i think i've definitely been in that situation where we've mixed stuff where i'm like i'm like it has like a like an identity and it sounds weird and cool but i don't necessarily think it's the best <laughs> Right, and I mean, at that point, I mean, it seemed like the Stooges were trying to 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 do. They were trying to elevate their sort of, you know, 
people's awareness of them. Yeah. And like you need a, a, an accessible mix to do that. Like the record's got to be anybody needs to hear it and be like that's cool. And if it's something where it's like we want to do something weird that like you know, Sid Vicious is going to listen to seven years from now and be like, wow, this is crazy. Let's like mix our shit super tinny like this because no one's doing it. You right, know, right. I don't think that that was their intention. I think they're all just like, David, you, you, you seem to have this figured out. Like, let us know what you think. Let's get a name on here and <laughs> yeah. like, you know, help us sell some records, you know? Yeah. yeah no, I, I, I see those kinds of mistakes happen and I've made them myself too. It's funny when we, when we did that single with Iggy pop and we got, uh, his, we recorded the music in LA and then the bass player went down to Miami and did the vocals with him. And then he, and he was totally on it. He was like, Oh, can you drop it down half a step? And, uh, I, I have this idea for this part. And like, he was way, way more involved than I thought he was going to be. Uh, just, I was like, Oh, he's not going to give a shit. You know, mm. he was super cool about it. But when he sent the vocals back to us, they were doubled but um, the doubles was so far off that we had to spend all this time just like moving, moving his vocals around and moving. And I was like, I was like, the last thing I thought, like when I was going to make a record with Iggy Pop, was that like I had to fix his vocals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that he would be the one that I was worried about, not not my band. You know, like, I hear you, man. And I mean, you know, when when they announced that they were going to do a record with Albini, I was like, holy shit, this is like the perfect storm of stuff. But I mean, sometimes like you take elements that you think are really like perfect together or that you just like, um, that might be kind of disparate. And I think that, you know, when you listen to something like raw power, it's, it's, it's even after Iggy mixed it, you know, there's, there's a wall of distortion going yeah. on. Everything is overdriven and, right. and that's part of what makes it sound rad. And that's exactly the opposite of what Albini wants to do. He wants everything to be accurate. So like it is, Unless you you know take it to an, I mean I haven't recorded with him but I would assume you know the situation is unless you take it to somebody else after he's done engineering it you're gonna get a very honest interpretation of whatever it is that you recorded and if you want it to have some sort of stylistic element over it he's not the guy who's gonna do it right so you get this very like bare sounding thing that I don't think it's necessarily um, advantageous to some some bands you know I, I mean. I've never recorded with him either, and I'll, all I know is that I have friends that have recorded with him, and everyone has an opinion when it comes to that. I mean, I can't think of a drum recording that he's done that I didn't love, um, but there's, like I said, I mean, I think that there are certain bands that, like, they lend themselves to things sounding kind of fucked up. Sure. And, and in a good way, and that, that's, that's not his deal. Like, he wants it to be accurate. I've gone into the studio and been like, Let, let's do that, and let's make it super accurate and not uh overdrive anything and make sure that the meters are right and mm -hmm. stuff like that and then came out with it and been like oh this sounds really boring and lifeless and now we have to go in and like fucking max shit out and <laughs> right. dirty stuff and run stuff through filters and you know just to make it sound like and then i've also been in situations where it's like we had like you know way less mics than you'd think and everything was bleeding and everything was not the way you're told to do it and then it just sounds it's got an energy to it right you know? so it just fucking so, i mean part of it is just like if you can nail the performance and get like as many of the you know i don't know from the way we recorded the best songs sounded the songs that sounded the best were the ones where we did almost everything live yeah and then sort of like i mean with separation but like 
the perf- if you can get a good performance, you don't have to fix much. You know, you can spend more time worrying the, about the other shit. The time tested way to do it, yeah. and that's the way they started recording musicless live. And it's just right. never they've never figured out a better way to do it. <laughs> they figured out different ways to do it that work. But like, and what bands were this way you were recording in? Like, so my wife and I, my girlfriend at the time, um, we had a band called Kamikaze. Is that that I I played guitar and sang in, and we had a bass player and she played drums. Um, that was the majority of like the recordings that I've done were with that band after. So like, I think in like 2012, our bassist moved to Portland and we kind of they fucked around with other bands. Why do yeah. they all do that? It's where everyone goes to retire, man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I swear born. it's just that's cheaper a, to live there. I dude. started out there. He, he, he flunked out at Los Angeles yeah. and ended up in Portland and he likes it there to his sure. credit. It's a cool spot. It's just, it was a bummer for us. Cause like, yeah. It's one of those things where, like, the band is starting to pick up momentum, and you kind of know what you're doing and like how to write, you know, and just. But yeah, I mean, he was he was getting kicked out of apartments and stuff like that, so I couldn't blame him. It yeah. was just it was just frustrating. But yeah, that was that was the, like, and we were in the middle of recording an LP when he when he split, and yeah. he was like, "I'll come back and we'll finish it." And that thing is still like in the rhythm tracks. <laughs> <laughs> It happens, man. It's it's happened. I've had people leave on tour, you know. So what? You what the fuck are you gonna do? So backing up then. So like you were eighteen, you started working for Car. What was Carcraft? Now I remember those magazines. Was that like so Carcraft was like the the budget version of Hot Rod? Okay, um, yeah, all right. Sort of under the same umbrella. It was of, very like, DIY stuff, though. Yeah, right? it was yeah. like you know you know five ways to get twenty horsepower for fifty bucks. You know? Right. And it was that, and that totally spoke to me as a teenager. Totally, so. I remember that magazine in the grocery store and just reading it, but like totally not understanding what you know, not having right. And I mean, some you know, it's it's technical, but like the idea was to make things like as budget friendly as possible. Whereas Hot Rod was like, here are some like super badass builds that somebody spent a quarter of a million dollars on. You know, it's sure. just like you can't relate to them. I mean, they're rad, but it's like, all right, I, I this is like I can't even afford one of these wheels. You right. Know? <laughs> And so, like, Carcraft was, like, sort of the anti-that. And where were they based out of? Um, they were in L.A. Okay. So, they had a... They, there was a building in Wilshire at the time. It was called Prime Media. It was sort of, like, the larger sort of umbrella that owned both Hot Rod and Carcraft and a bunch of other stuff. They're called uh, the Enthusiast Network now. Mm-hmm. And they're over on the west side of L.A. But at the time, they were, like, Miracle Mile area. And so, I just started calling them and said, hey, like, can I get an intern... Like, I looked through one of the magazines once and I saw that somebody did an internship with them. And I was like, okay... That's like a thing that people do. I'll try that and like see if they'll like take me. And they did. So I, I worked there for like four or five months and I was like, you know, it was cool and they were, they were great. I wasn't doing a lot of driving. It was doing a lot of writing and I kind of wanted to do more of that, but I knew, I mean, obviously you have to, you know, pay your dues, but at the same time, like I, I wanted to go to school and sort of at least give myself some options, like, and not just commit to this right away. So, um, you know, I spent, I did that internship and then I spent a couple of years in JC and then I transferred to, to Berkeley. And while I was up there, um, I, and the other magazine I was super into a few years later was Gearhead, oh, yeah. which is, you know, half rock and roll, half, half well, they had, when I, when I got to Sub Pop, they had Gearhead Records and there was a few bands on there, you know, that I remember like Zeke and some of these. Yep. <laughs> no, bands. they did tons of cool shit. And I was like, this is like, this is the shit. Like, yeah. this is what I want to do. So I hit up Mike Lavella and I was like, hey, dude, I did an internship for Carcraft. I'm super into rock and roll. Like, let's, you know, can I, can I work for you? Can I do anything? And so I started doing record reviews for Gearhead and started covering events and went to, like, there was this rad thing I covered called Jumping Johnny's Crash-O-Rama in like... <laughs> 
Rose Roseville, I think. I don't know, some, somewhere up by Sacramento. And this guy um, had ran a junkyard where he was doing, where he was just setting up crazy fucking jumps with like junked cars, like <laughs> just completely unsanctioned mania. Yeah. And like somebody like complained about it. And so like he stopped doing it at the junkyard and like got his own like compound where like he had like a whole festival set up. I mean, for all I know, they might still be doing it, but like I was covering stuff like that and it was super rad. And I was doing record reviews too. And the guy running the magazine at the time was this guy, Davey Johnson, who was super into rock and roll. And he was like, you know, I was doing mostly record reviews because I thought that was kind of where I wanted to go with it. Um, and Davey was like running that magazine, but also writing about cars like for professionally at the time. And he's like, you know, you should consider doing this because, you know, you're good at it. And I, you know, I kind of thought about it. I was like, oh, I'm going to, you know, keep working towards what I'm doing and we'll see where things go. And so I did a bunch of stuff for Gearhead. And then when I came back down to L.A., Gearhead kind of like petered off because, you know, the, the circulation, the, the subscriptions were down and it was just a smaller thing at that point. Um, so I just kind of bounced around and focused on the band. Like we started the band like pretty much right at, like right after I graduated, we moved back down to L.A. Um, and that's when we got the band started. And I really focused on that and just sort of did part time jobs to cover rent. Um, and eventually, you know, we got, you know, we got to the point where we were doing, you know, tours and stuff like that. And when Matt left our bass player, when he moved up to Portland, right around that time, I got this opportunity to take over, um, this magazine called Winding Road, which is like a digital magazine that only focused on like performance cars and race cars. So like I had been doing sort of like random stuff, um, with that was car related where I would like, you know rewrite press releases or like, you know, do like some event coverage or something like that, like cover an auto show here and there. Um, but when I started a winding road, like you get, I inherited this like Rolodex of just like every contact in the industry. And suddenly I'm being invited to like, you know, crazy, you know, you know, track drives in Stuttgart and stuff like that. Right. It just happened like yeah. pretty much like overnight. And so it, it changed the whole ball game. And so I was like, fuck, I should probably focus on this right now. And so for the next few years, that was like in 2013, um, for like the next three or four years, that was, you know, the band sort of took, you know, a backseat to that. Like I wanted to make sure that I could make this work. Um, and eventually I just started just being a freelancer full time. And at this point, like I just kind of call my own shots, which is kind of rad. Yeah. So you, you are a freelance journalist now you don't you don't work for any magazine right. you're not got it like automobile magazine the, the, how do the how do the uh, assignments come into you then sometimes people will send me stuff and they'll be like hey can you cover this event for us or can you review this car for us or whatever um other times i will get sent something from an automaker like hey we're doing a first drive of the gt500 at you know las vegas speedway do you want to do you want to come out and cover it and so like if i get an invite like that i'll hit up you know, whoever I like writing for and be like, Hey, would you want this, this story? Right. That's, that's pretty much how it goes. Right. So the, so the, so that assignment actually comes from the manufacturer, the car, the car company to you, and then you will pitch it to the magazine. The generally. opportunities sometimes come from the OEMs. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, for instance, with this S 209, um, it was something. So after they do those events, typically when a car is either just about to go on sale or has gone on sale, They'll put a few like examples of that car into what they call a press fleet, um, and so 
they have those in all the major metropolitan areas in the country. And you, this is one of the things that's like huge about that Rolodex is having these contacts. Cause you just, you hit these people up and you go, Hey, I want to, you know, I want to do this for this outlet. Like I want to do a review of the S209 for automobile magazine mm-hmm. or something like that. And so if the, you have a good relationship with those people, just be like, okay, cool. Well, you know, here's the dates that we have. Can you do those dates and you schedule it or whatever. Um, for newcomers, usually they, they talk to the OEM first and say like, hey, is it cool if this guy borrows the car to do this assignment and they'll like sign off on it. Um, but generally that, that is one way you can write stories is sort of getting, getting the cars to the press fleet or doing these events, um, that either are given to, or sent to you by an outlet. Like, can you cover this for us or sent to you directly from one of the OEMs? And like, how important is it for, for a car, uh, manufacturer, like when they're unveiling like a new car to get this like sort of press stuff like i mean it's a big deal i mean yeah. i was just in Vail, colorado earlier this week for the new yukon and that program was kind of one of those ones where like you know so usually what they do is they'll they'll do it in waves like they'll have like three or four waves of journalists that they'll bring in like maybe 20 25 of them at a time and that way like whatever they want you to test or show off um everybody has a good amount of time to do it um, with this, they were like, yeah, we're going to let you drive the Yukon while you're there, like this new one. Um, but we're also unveiling it. So we're going to, sh- we're going to have you drive the camo, like this car, like camoed, and then we're going to unveil it like the next day or whatever. Um, so what they did, um, because the unveiling is only going to happen once they invited like a ton of journalists all there simultaneously, like 150, you know, people from different outlets. And so the driving part was like super short because they have a bazillion people they have to like right. churn through there. Right. So it was just really what it was was they wanted an ex- like to to dupe us into being at their like reveal and cover the reveal of the car. Right. Um. And they incentivize it by saying you're going to get to drive this car a little bit. But I mean, that's part of the deal with the way the industry works. I mean, there are some things that are annoying about that, but at the same time, um, sometimes that's the best access you're going to get to something like right, right away. So. I guess I was wondering because I read like your the last story you wrote the Lamborghini uh, one that was linked on Instagram. Yeah, the Huracan. Yeah, and uh, I was thinking, you know, it's funny. Like if you read like a if you're reading a record review, you're probably reading that because you have some uh, inkling that you might want to buy that record. For you know, sure. Or, or so, I mean, that's, whereas, that's why they do. You know, that's why they work with the journalists is because they want people to buy the cars. Of course, <laughs> but uh, people. But I'm reading an article on something I'll never buy or never right. have the funding to be able to purchase. At least you know until my life is completely altered or something. Those like, you know what I mean? Like, are, yeah, no. But the, the manufacturers are playing the long game. Like they know that like a lot of the people who are reading that stuff, especially like on Instagram Kids. and shit like that, yeah. yeah, they know that they're like twelve, thirteen. Well, years I mean, old. when I was a kid, I had a fucking Lamborghini Countach poster in my wall. You know, some of those guys, five, ten years from now, right. they'll be able to afford that stuff. Right. And that stuff, they, they're they're all about like retaining customers and like sort of building a relationship with them. And if they can, the social media really allows them to do that. They can sort of like latch people onto their brand, and so like they're. They're looking years of ahead, you know. Right. It's not necessarily that like think. I mean, some people will read that and go out and buy it like right away. But sometimes, like a kid will read that and be like, "That's really cool. I'm gonna keep following this brand and see what they do." I'm like, gonna where be they a Lamborghini guy. Yeah, you know? totally. yeah. My friend's dad, he's a Ferrari guy for life, you mm-hmm. know, and that's all he 
buys. And I mean, brand know. allegiance is like a strong thing, and and yeah. the, and the OEMs they they know that and they yeah. they care. <laughs> so, for instance, someone gives you a car to, to to take out and put through its paces. Like, what, like, where do you go and what do you do with it on like a typical sort of article? If you're going to like go drive this car around in L.A. and then and then report back and tell someone what what it was like, you know, it depends on the car. Um, but generally, um, if it's a performance car, I'll take it up to Angeles Forest just because there's a ton of really good roads up there. Mm -hmm. um, it's super close to where I, I live. Like I can be at the base of the mountain in 10 or 15 minutes typically. And, it, you know, you're out in the middle of nowhere within like yeah. 20 miles of being on it. So all those things are beneficial for, you know, sort of evaluating a performance car. Um, there's also like nice scenery out there. So it's easy to get good photos. If you yeah. try and do that in like in the middle of LA, like it's, which I did for a while, like try to get like cool, like urban shots of things like in downtown, you, you have like a 20 second window in any given part of downtown where like there won't be another car in the shot or right. somebody walking by or something like that. So Angeles forest also benefits me in that way. We're like, you won't see another soul for an hour at a time. Usually like when I'm like where I was today, like probably 25 miles in, I mean, you, I saw maybe three cars the whole time I was up there. Right. Um, and, but also, you know, typically unless it's like something that's like super track focused, you, you want to evaluate it in town too, because like that's where it's going to get driven the majority of the time. So I have kind of a loop that I do like in, in Northeast LA and I just, usually I'll just drive it like, you know, like it's my daily for however long I have it. And do you ever get any trouble with like cops or anything like that? Like, <laughs> not, no, <laughs> no. Um, I mean, most of the time, like first off, like even the cops up there, like they kind of know who knows what they're doing and who doesn't. So even if like you're, you're kind of pushing things, like they generally have an idea of who is going to be a pain in the ass for them and who isn't. Right. So they they've been I haven't I haven't had any issues with cops up in Angeles Forest ever. Did you have to train or learn to drive like a Lamborghini or something like that? Were you ever did, was it nerve-wracking when you first got in there? When I, mean, I when I started um with Winding Road in 2013, I I mean I thought I knew how to drive, but I actually didn't know shit. Right. <laughs> and it's because they had like um like a significant portion of their business was around like amateur racing, they put me through a racing school like right away. And it was like, it, I mean, the, they put me in a car, like a, like a spec Miata, like, like a race prepped Miata that you race against other, like similarly prepped Miatas. And that was the first time I'd ever been on a racetrack in my mm -hmm. life. And like, it was kind of just like, you know, sink or swim kind of deal. And so I kind of learned the basics right away. And then as I did the job, like sometimes like a lot of these, um, OEMs, they, when they, you know, when they sell you one of these super gnarly, um, you know, performance cars, they have like, like, a, like a driving school. Yeah. Like um, Porsche Travis driving school. Totally. BM and BMW. All the luxury marks have it yeah. now. And so does Dodge. Like er everybody who sells a, a, like a serious performance car has one now. Um, and so they typically want the media, like they want to promote that, especially when those things are first being, you know, sort of, you know, rolled out. So they'll invite the media to go do that program. And so I've done like dozens of those now. So, each one of those, you know, it sort of teaches you something new. Yeah. And, you know, once you get down, like, the the core basics, you can kind of teach yourself a lot just with time behind the wheel. Right, right. And and so when you go out, too, are you taking the photos, too, or, like... Most of the time. Yeah. Like, like the ones I... I mean, I, I went out there today to do photos for one right. of the stories I'm doing. But, like, next week, 
they're bringing a photographer out to do photos for that story. That's just like something that the outlet I'm writing it for opted to do. And how much does it, do you think it plays in now with like Instagram and social media versus like, you know, video versus photo versus writing versus, I mean, I think that, I think it's huge and I think it's getting bigger. Like when I first started in 2013, I had like a ghetto DSLR and it sucked. And like the photos I was taking were just barely passable. And I could get away with it because I worked for an outlet um, that like I was a staffer. And so like the OEMs needed to send us, you know, invites to things and they couldn't really complain about our coverage. Right. Um, But, you know, eventually I start when I started freelancing, I was like, I need to up my game. And so like I immediately bought a better DSLR. And then like two years later, I like went all in and bought like a 5D and like nice lenses and stuff like that because especially as a freelancer, like that's the first thing people see about your writing. Like this is what they're going to associate with you. Like we know Brad's going to get good photos and Mm -hmm. like that is, that's a big deal. I mean, people, you know, want to think that everybody reads every word of every article you write, but you know, for sure, if they're flipping through Instagram, they're going to see that picture. And like, so like, you know, for instance, like I write stuff for super street, which is like a tuner magazine, like sport compact stuff. Those guys, I mean, that is, that is the core focus is like the visuals. So, it's important to, I mean, and they have like 3 million followers right. like that on Instagram. So if I'm going to take a photo that they're going to post on their feed, I want it to be good. Right. You know, Cause if they're going to link to me, like it's that a lot of people are going to see that thing. So, I mean, I think that the photos are huge. I mean, video obviously is, is important. I think that it's almost like oversaturation now. Like there's so many people doing have a YouTube channel or whatever, yeah. and they're all kind of doing the same thing that like, Somebody needs to innovate in that space for it to remain interesting. But I mean, it's certainly an important aspect of it for mm-hmm. sure. I don't think that either of those get get into the same level of depth that you can with writing. But I think that it's tough to expect people to commit like half an hour at a time to specifically look at your story. You well, know? I think with yeah, with Instagram, it seems like with anything with food, guitars, cars, it's just you know, it's it's so immediate the gratification. Right. I mean, you're going to watch like a thirty second video of something and be kind of satisfied with it totally is a half an hour car show where they go in depth about suspension and things like that right know? and i mean some people just all that all the minutiae is just irrelevant to them like they want kind of like just the the sort of high level stuff right know? right what's like what's like the craziest car that they've let you drive then like that you've been assigned you know uh bugatti chiron for sure yeah um so that is the successor to the veyron mm-hmm. um which is a w16 quad turbocharged like you know super, it, it, the company's owned by volkswagen but they're french mm-hmm. and they only make super 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 high-end like performance cars that car had i think 1600 horsepower um Jesus. and they sell for three and a half million dollars <laughs> so I mean that and where were you driving it? I drove that one up in Malibu. Oh wow. Like that 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 they did not give me overnight. Like I had to go somewhere and they were like we're, we're going to put you in the car, go on this route, we're putting this guy as right. your babysitter, be back in 2 hours, you know. Um that car was certainly like that's definitely the most expensive thing I ever driven. Um the gnarliest, I mean I drove um an Aventador, a Lamborghini Aventador SVJ at uh Estoril, which is a uh, an F1 circuit in Portugal about like a year and a half ago. And they let us go as, as fast as we wanted to go. And that's a, that's a formula one circuit. So on the main straight, you can go about 180 miles an hour. Yeah. And I mean, that's, and when you're going that quick and you're that close to the wall, I mean, you feel how fast that is. And a lot of tracks when you're like, 
when you're in a wide open space, like the sense of scale is different because like you're not seeing everything going by as quickly. Like you're, it's major landmarks. Like there's the flag station way up there. Okay, it just went by. But like, because that was a Formula One circuit, um, there's like bleachers and stuff like that that are right in front of, you know, the main straight. So when you go by them, like you see a lot of stationary objects going by very quickly. And it right. definitely reminds you of how quickly you're going. And what's your take on like, you know, a car like a Bugatti or a Lamborghini and these cars that, uh, you know, they have this history and this craftsmanship to them. And then, and then also these just explosive engines. And then you put them up against like a Tesla that just blows their doors off in, in a straightaway, you know, like it's different use cases. So yeah. like if you were to put like, uh, like an Aventador, um, versus, the gnarliest Tesla out there in like a standing mile. Um, the Aventador is going to beat the Tesla. It's going to beat it for sure. Okay. They accelerate incredibly well, but yeah. because of you know the limitations of the way electric drive works, those cars in particular, I think they top out around 130 miles an hour. Okay. So yeah. eventually you're going to reel them back in with, with, with the gas powered car. And the other thing that they're still trying to figure out with, with EVs um, is they, they, it's hard to cool them. Like it's hard to keep the systems cooled when you're driving them hard. Mm -hmm. So like, you, you know, with like a model three performance, you might get like three laps out of it before it wants to shut down or, or at least go into limp mode, which is something that, you know, a good internal combustion engine um, performance car, you should be able to do 30 laps before you really start noticing. I mean, at that point, your brakes are overheating, your tires are overheating, but it's not the engine, you know, it's not the car itself. It's sort of the components that are sort of dissipating heat all the time. Right. Um, but the way battery technology works, or at least the way that they're doing it now, um, the heat comes from the inside out. So whereas like with a, with an engine, like a traditional engine, you can just cool it, um, you know, externally and it, and it, and it does enough to keep it cool. Mm -hmm. If you blow like cold air over a battery pack, you're not getting to like where the heat is starting. Right. So it's really it, it's a tough like you know problem to solve right now, and no no one's really done it well yet. Well, where do you see that stuff going then, as far as like uh, the trends for EV cars? Is I told this I told you I was gonna fucking put the thing on silent, and I <laughs> th three podcasts in a row. I swear to God, I turned nice. It. I don't know how the I, obviously I don't know how my fucking you, you got to put it on. Do not disturb. I put it on silent mode. It's, it was off. I thought it was. Um, it's either my wife or my mother calling. So every <laughs> every time. Um, but where do you see like the trends going as far as that goes? Like as far as like can have can EV cars compete? Like there's a new Porsche yeah EV that that's supposed to come out. And you know, for a long time, you know, the OEMs really the major ones weren't really putting a lot of money into EVs and Tesla was kind of like at the forefront of what was going on. And I was, and it was mostly because the, the major OEMs were focused on internal combustion engine stuff. And that was sort of the rollout that they were doing. I mean, generally they're, they're working on a new car like five years ahead of time, um, before it actually comes out. So like that just, the whole EV thing was not in their playbook for a long, long time. And there wasn't enough of them being sold to like for them to care. Um, that is changing. Like there's many billions of dollars going into EV research and development right now within like Mercedes and BMW mm -hmm. and all these other major OEMs, Volkswagen, like these companies have just like an order of magnitude more money than Tesla does. 
And so when those companies like start throwing their weight around and they, they can just put a, a squad of engineers on this stuff for years at a time, they will they will come up with some stuff. And right. I'm sure that you know Tesla, to their credit, has done a lot with what they have. Sure. Um, but they and are on a shoestring budget compared to what like, yeah. Mercedes-Benz or Volkswagen has. And also, like those companies, I would imagine, probably will be sharing components sure. too once they get like the, the drivetrain the yep. way they want it that will be across many different cars and platforms and absolutely you know. and i mean that's that's the whole industry is going in that way now i mean every, everything is about figuring out ways to make every component modular so that they can adapt it you know this, this component can go in a sedan it can go in an suv it can go in a, in a in a sports car or whatever right um it's cheaper for them to do it that way so what well, we had a similar thing you know i'm sorry to interrupt you i just because we had a similar thing where we had a volkswagen and we were like should we turn it in and the guy the mechanic was like yeah get rid of this one because anything that you get this model year is going to have the same problem right. because uh -huh. they all are sharing the same yep. component transmission or whatever and that, it was, and the, I mean, more and more the industry is going in that direction now like even ferrari is working on a modular platform and i mean so like that you know you might get into like an audi q8 or something like that but that's actually a lamborghini urus also right and it's also like a i don't know a porsche cayenne right. it's like a bunch of different cars like that like essentially the bones of that car and a lot of the things that attach to those bones are the same sure. like they're the same part number the the super that just came out is literally a bmw like it's 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 a z4 like you you pop the hood and there are BMW part numbers on the stuff in, in, inside there. I mean, they did the body work and they did some of the like aesthetic stuff and, you know, tuned, you know, their version of it. But BMW and, and Toyota did a partnership where they, you know, created a platform, but it really they use like BMW, you know, engines and BMW transmissions and BMW differentials and all. And the, the platform itself is a BMW platform. So, um, more and more like there is a, a sharing of components as much as possible to sort of keep this stuff like for them to make it like feasible financially to do right. this stuff, especially with like the smaller volume stuff like sports cars. And what do you see as far as like, as far as the electric vehicles, is there, is there an impact environmentally like in that, that, that that's going to solve any, problems that we have in the environment because it still takes a fuckload of oil to produce a tire or to produce paint or produce the, I mean, I the think components, you know? A lot of people would like to think that like that, that's going to do it. I mean, you look at the amount of fuel that's used in like a transatlantic flight or like a, 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 like a cargo ship or something like that. Like, and what we're doing with cars is, is a fraction of that. Um, it's certainly in the right direction it's sort of like that thing where they were like really hard on people in la to conserve water a few years ago mm -hmm. um like it was like it was people like it was res the, the resident like the citizens of, L of of southern california's fault right whereas like if you look at like the water consumption in, in california like 96 percent of it is is like corporations like is, is industry sure and, like agricultural and stuff like that so like even if we all you know were really you know diligent about doing that like it's it's just sort of um it's a drop in the bucket yeah and yeah. i mean it's just sort of a, a distraction like a way to make it look like they they're doing something um i think that evs could certainly help um there's a lot of precious metals that are involved in sort of making those that mm -hmm. 
Like they're the getting screens and shit, like the computers that they use in a Tesla, you know. Well, just the sheer number of batteries they have yeah. to sort of create to make these things and the, and the, and the materials that they use in those. Um, a lot of mining has to be done to do that and stuff like that. I mean, it, nothing's perfect. And also, like, as we shift over to EVs, like, the, the electrical grid's going to have to adjust to that, too, because, like, all of our demand is going to, sh- like, shift from gas stations to the the grid mm-hmm. and so like i mean th- it, things will have to be built out one way or another right um certainly it's better for us to have less emissions um and like i think that one of the reasons that the oems are putting so much money into it now is because we the government has sort of established these emission standards and these fuel economy standards that are really high and like the industry is not innovating internal combustion engines at a fast enough pace to fix that like to, to meet those standards. Mm-hmm. And so when they, when they don't hit those numbers, they get fined. And so, um, this is part of like Tesla's business model is that they get credits from the government for being under those, those standards, like not having any emissions and having these, you know, fuel economy numbers that are much higher than the industry average. Um, so they get credits from, from, right. from the government and a lot of OEMs like Dodge and other ones um, buy those credits from Tesla in order to not get fined by the government for, for not hitting those numbers. Um, and what ends up happening when those companies can't hit them is they do things like um, start-stop ignition and stuff like that, where like the engine just shuts off when you go to, when you when you stop at a light and stuff like that. <laughs> That's a, that, that happens in our in our, my wife's car, this Volkswagen. And because I've been on tour in Europe a number of times, I'm used to it. Mm. But when it happened to her, she was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I personally, I mean, some people don't care about it. I personally think that it, it screws up, like, the driving experience. Yeah. Like, when it happens to me, even now, and I've been driving these cars for years, like, I always immediately think I'm doing something wrong. Right. Like, like something has gone wrong. And also, like, it's sketchy. Like, let's say you're, like, you know, at a left-hand turn at Western and, and Hollywood at, like, 6 o'clock. You like that fraction of a second that it takes for that engine to start, like matters. Yeah. You know, you have very small windows where you can kind of get it, get through that intersection safely. And yeah, I think I the just, combination of uh, ways and stop start engines, <laughs> left <laughs> turns, we'll see, we'll see how long that lasts. I don't know. Yeah. It so, doesn't bother me just because I'm so used to it because we drove so much off driven all over Europe in like tour vans and Mercedes and, and Volkswagen tour vans and they're always that way. So mm-hmm. I'm just used to it. So it doesn't bother me at all, but I, I, I can see how it would bug the shit out of somebody. You know? They're kind of band-aids yeah. and we're doing a lot of that right now to sort of figure out how to make these kind of ancient engine designs like more efficient without actually creating a new engine design um, because that's super 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 expensive like even general motors which is you know a a company that like cranks out pretty you know engines pretty regularly um they will stick with like a v8 for 20 years at a time even now you know and i I think you still get a fucking 350 like ls1 is like basically a 350 right essentially it's it's it is a, a progression like it's a it's a you know generational jump but i mean they're yeah they're all you know sort of based on the same pushrod small block design um that came out in 1955 yeah so i mean it's you know there is an there's an incentive for these companies to innovate but at the same time like um they're not prepared financially to like just change everything like every few years and also like if you're a consumer there's there's a lot of ins and outs to it it's a complicated thing but if you ch- if you make dramatic changes on that stuff every few years, it's going to cost people a ton to repair them, and you're going to need specialists who know like 
this engine that existed for five years before they changed it again. You know? right. I see. I feel like that might be that's one of Tesla's problems too. Is just that like you have to take it to the dealer to get it repaired, and right. you see these guys on the on YouTube that are like trying to hack their way into these battery units mm. and like i mean and you can't just take it to a mechanic and even if you could who the fuck knows how to work on the thing you know right like, and there's no guarantee re- that that guy even knows how to do it even though he says he does you know real quick what do you think about the tesla truck then <laughs> i thought it was i loved how stupid it was yeah like you know it, it's ridiculous and they have to know that it is yeah um but nothing interesting happened at the LA auto show until that thing was unveiled. Like they didn't even attend the LA auto show and they won it anyway. Right. Because it's just, it's so off the wall. And if, I mean, when, if, and when they make that truck, like for production, it's probably not going to look like that. I can't. Um, if you just look at some of like the, um, videos of people riding along in them, like the visibility in that truck is absolutely terrible. Like it's not a, it's not a feasible design to use. Like, right well you know well that was the thing like when i saw it on the stage i was like okay it's weird looking like a kind of futuristic it looks kind of badass that stuff's rad that's rad but when i look when i saw the guy inside it and then the the dashboard is just basically like a flat table like and then you have these gigantic um pillars in (laughs) front of you that like i mean that's like a whole lane of traffic that you wouldn't be able to see in each direction you know (laughs) and you have no visibility behind you and they're like oh yeah We'll put cameras in it. Well, what happens when like you're in snow and those cameras are covered in snow? You right. have no rear rear visibility. Like, and so the minute that somebody goes to test drive that truck, like in Idaho, and they're just like, "Okay, I'm totally gonna go buy an F-150 instead." Did you Did you drive it? No, I mean, yeah. it, they're still prototypes, so right. they're not letting anybody drive yet. Even when they are like done, like they're in production, uh, Tesla specifically is really. Um, cautious about giving their cars out to journalists right because like, right. they I don't, for a lot of reasons but sure. i mean it, it, they are kind of an exception to the rule like they they it's pretty rare that they'll give out cars to journalists and when they do it's usually under like very curated circumstances so we'll see but that journalists won't be driving that thing for at least two years i'd imagine well because then they open themselves up to criticism on right. it too you know which is like what you just said about the visibility and stuff like that and then one last thing i wanted to ask you um was what do you think about the push towards self-driving cars i mean it's a great idea um in order for i mean because people are more distracted than ever driving right now. And like, it's a problem. People are getting killed. You know, pedestrians are getting killed a lot more. Um, The numbers are going in the wrong direction and they weren't for a really long time. Like things were getting safer and we have to come up with a solution for that. Uh, The the problem is that there are so many variables that like you can't program for um, including weather, but also just like things that your brain does where it sort of evaluates a situation and makes a decision it's really tough to write code for every single one of those things. Mm-hmm. And it's not just like a matter of like this crash is intimate. What, which thing do I hit? It's like, okay, like I'm coming to like, like I can't imagine um, a self-driving car functioning in, in like rush hour, San Francisco, because there's like, there are like six way intersections there where like you have to like read like a small novel to figure out like what is okay to do at a certain you know time of day and whatever. And there are like a lot of decisions that need to be made immediately based on like the information coming in. And if a, if a computer can't do that, it's just not going to do anything. 
It's just going to stay stationary. Well, what if they're all connected, though, and they're kind of swarming around, and they know what the other one's doing, and this car knows that it needs to get to, like, Divisadero, and this car knows that it needs sure. to go. I mean, if you had a controlled environment like that, yeah. you could do that right now. Like, right. you could, you could. I mean, we have technology, like, Wi-Fi would do that, you know? That's what, and, yeah. And, like, 5G connectivity, I mean, that stuff will make that easy to do once it's, once it's built out. Mm-hmm. The problem is you have to have everybody on the same page, and... Right. We have hundreds of millions of cars on the road that aren't that. And right. so it has to be programmed around all the like randomness that's going to happen because these they're not talking to those cars. Well, do you think that, like for instance, we would have this thing where like Ford or whoever has this kind of base model uh, self-driving car and then Lamborghini per se is able to still make their, you know, uh, sure. cars and then... You know, the guy who just wants to get to work, he's in his auto, on t- autonomous car. And then I mean, and then I think someone you else put can that drive tech in the into the Lamborghini yeah. eventually. I right. mean, I think that and I think that they will. Well, I think you could, but it, but it kind of takes the whole point away from owning it, though. You I know? think that what will end up happening is you'll have the option. Um, right. with, a, with a performance car. Who the fuck's just... ever going to choose that option? Unless, I guess you're drunk. You go to the yeah. bar in the Lamborghini. Or you're, and then you're you on the on. 10 at yeah. like 530. Sure. You don't yeah. want, and you just want to like watch something on your phone or something right. like that. Like that, that will exist for that reason. Um, right. But like I said, I, the idea that that stuff is like five or 10 or 20 years away is kind of bullshit. Like okay. it's, and it, I mean, it helps get people excited about cars, especially in a time when like people are getting like less and less interested in them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always, you know, I kind of use like 3D TV as a tech, as like an analogy. Like they pushed this new tech, like you know, whatever, ten years ago, that like everyone's super into 3D TV, and like it, it was the manufacturers creating that hype, but like they really what they were doing was trying to create a market for a thing that didn't exist yet. Right. And the, the consumer is ultimately going to be the one who's going to decide that. You can't like will that into existence. So it is going to take a long, long time, even after the technology works, for people to adopt it on a large enough scale for it to be usable. Even 3D movies. I mean, you had Avatar and then everything else is just a joke. Right. You know, exactly. like Avatar is fucking awesome. Like, let's eat a bunch of mushrooms and go see <laughs> Avatar. But then it's like, oh, do I want to, oh, the Green Lantern's in 3D. Like, and it's just right. like, oh, like the guy's fucking logo on his and thing. It's a is one like trick pony. Puffy, you know, you know yeah. like big fucking deal, you know, and it's been around since the 50s. And like you said, you know, there are a lot of people who aren't going to want to do things that way. Like, I personally, like, I always thought 3D was bullshit because, like, I think I it's just, bullshit. It doesn't, the colors look weird and washed out and whatever. Like, I just kind of want to see things the way it is. Like, I don't need that gimmick yeah. involved. I don't in care it. about virtual reality. I really don't yeah. give a shit. Like, I'd rather those, go out a lot for, of those, for a walk, you know? Totally. And I mean, a lot of those things, you know, like I said, I mean, they're, it, it's manufacturers being like, shit, like, we have to innovate in some way in order to, like, convince people to keep buying stuff at this rate. Yeah. So, like, we'll get them excited about this new thing that's coming any day now that, like, everybody should have. Um, and I mean that self-driving is kind of that thing for for the automotive industry right now. I'm a luddite when it comes to most things, and like you know, computers, phones, whatever. I just once something works, it's going to take me forever to just change. And <laughs> you know, just in general, you know, like fucking, I'm playing in a fucking rock and roll band in 2020, man. It's just like you know, <laughs> like we're we're sitting here on we're recording this podcast on probably what anyone who does podcasts would be like. That's a really stupid way to do it, you know. <laughs> takes me way longer i'm just used to what i'm yeah, used it to works I'm, for you i'm just an old dude and i just i think as far as 
that stuff goes. I think we just get rid of any cars post 1972. Everyone has to turn in their car. <laughs> Everything that's not pre 1972 becomes a self driving vehicle. Mm-hmm. So there's just fucking like Chargers and Camaros, and then like people in like weird little pods. I mean, it's like a rad, you know, post apocalyptic scenario that you have there. That's how I live day to day, man. <laughs> I would kind of miss stuff like analog brakes and some other cool. There are good things that have happened since 1972. It's even in the realm of performance, but not I enough. Hear what you're though. saying not enough. Good thing. <laughs> the only thing we got after 1972 is analog brakes and HIV. So I feel like <laughs> we, we can go back to that. You know, fair but, enough. Yeah. So I think we'll probably end it on that. Right uh, on, man. <laughs> I'm gonna take a stand finally. <laughs> All right, thanks, Brad. Appreciate it. You bet.